Hello and welcome to the Business Class Lounge, the podcast where I interview marketing leaders and executives to understand how they really think about leadership, management, finance, and more. This is a podcast from Searchpilot. My name is Will Critchlow. I'm speaking today to Stephanie Chang. Stephanie is a neuroscience major turned growth marketer. We first met over a decade ago when she joined the New York office of my agency, Distilled. Since then, she's built her career leading growth and strategy at Etsy and Glossier before starting her own fractional CMO business in 2020. Over the past three years, she's helped startup CEOs work through their most difficult growth and go-to-market challenges. She's driven, intelligent and inspirational, and I think we're all going to learn a ton from her. Thank you so much for joining me today, Steph. Really excited about today's conversation. You are one of the people who has impressed me the most over the years with your kind of self-directed learning and ambition to know more. And one of the things I'm really curious of, jumping straight into it, is how have you handled continuing professional development? And how do you continue learning? Where do you learn from? And how do you think about that as your role has changed and you've got more senior over the years? Yeah, originally, so I got my start at Distilled, which is how I met you, Will. Uh, Originally, it was a lot of reading industry blogs. At the time, it was Moz, Search Engine Land. And then when I became head of SEO at Etsy and developing strategy there, that continued. It really changed as the needs of the job changed. So one way I've always been on top of it is, okay, I know that I want to progress and expand into these new channels. Where are the opportunities there to learn? A lot of it is being connected with people who are very knowledgeable in the space and having like one-to-one conversations and then just being a bit of a fly on the wall and saying, okay, what are the requirements? What did you wish you had learned? And frankly, these were all very informal conversations that we would meet and then ask them where they learn this information from. And then as the career progressed, originally it was like very linear, right? So you learn management styles and then do you mm-hmm. learn like first round capital, how to really helpful blog around what it looks like for leadership, for management. And then at my level now, I'm actually not reading as much marketing material or leadership mm-hmm. and management material. It's more of psychology, economics, because I'm starting to get more inspiration from less directly related sources and just thinking about how people think how people behave, how people react in this way so I can better anticipate like the future. And that has really helped as well because I've started getting inspiration just from like food bloggers. Like how do they think about the chemistry of food? How do you think about nonprofit organization and organization development in those industries? How do you think about fundraising? Just because those are the things that spark new interest and new curiosity within myself. And so finding those nuggets of inspiration have become more and more important in my phase of career. I can totally resonate with that, actually, because I think it's very natural to go from the tactical channel-based learning, like you say, learning the, the techniques and the methodologies of the channel through to the leadership and management side of things. But I hadn't quite put my finger on that next transition, but I, I've felt that as well, that kind of diving into fundamentals and particularly everything boils down to people at the end of the day, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So whether you're approaching it as kind of psychology of like an individual, or I guess economics is the study of groups of people and and how they operate in those kind of ways. So that's kind of really interesting. 
What about the, like, have you found that there are other areas of hard skills that you've needed, like specific skills you've needed? So for example, I don't know, finance or those kinds of areas where you've had to kind of go back to maybe the earlier styles of learning, but in different areas as you progressed and got more senior? Yes. So the moment I took over all of Etsy's paid media budget, Mm -hmm. which is around 2015, I realized very quickly that my knowledge of finance was not strong enough. And so I started reading a lot more financial blogs, listening to podcasts and transcripts of earnings calls so I could understand Mm. the language and then reading all the actual files that people submitted and just going through, like, can I understand this? All right. What does it actually mean to read a piano? Can I actually generate my own forecast without even looking at a template? Because that's a way to test my own knowledge to be like, do I actually inherently have the right framework and the right approach to thinking about this versus just copy and pasting some type of format myself? And so Mm. it required a bit of like continuous iteration and practice. And with every organization I've been with, one of the key partners has always been the finance team. So we'd sit down on a monthly basis and I'd put together and share my version of how we are performing and where I anticipate we'd land in the month and the quarter. They'd show me their projections and we'd go through that. Where's the gap? Why do we think that gap is existing? What do I see on the marketing side? What do they see on overall business side? And then... That first side is just, can I predict what my challenges are going to do to a fairly strong degree of confidence? So when I say fairly Mm -hmm. strong degree at Etsy, it would be like in the 95 plus, right? So your margin error is very tight. It ranges based on where you are in the stage of your business. That's the first step. The second step is, okay, can I really ask meaningful questions around margin, around cogs, around all of these attributes? Is revenue just enough? And nine Mm -hmm. times out of 10, it's not, right? What does actually profit mean at different levels? And what are things that are really valuable here? And that honing in, so that actually became critically important, especially at the director level. And then at the higher level than that, it's more about your ability to anticipate what risks you're willing to take, lead the team in that direction based on how the business's confidence in their growth rate and how much room they have traditionally from like a cash or profit perspective to decide when is the right out time to take certain risks and when is not the right time. And so understanding the nuance of when is the right time to say, okay, this is a proposal I have. This is the reason why I believe we should utilize this time and these resources for X, Y, Z became a really meaningful part of quote unquote, the job. Yeah, sounds fascinating because I think, I'm not sure you realize how unusual it is for someone to build that up, like, you know, to realize that they've got that gap and then go straight to the source, right? Start reading the 10K or the mm-hmm. those kinds of things, listening to the earning calls and trying to backpropagate some projections. But I definitely encourage, we do it quite a lot with sales prospects, with our big customers, those kind of things to listen to their earnings calls, partly because you get those things you talked about, that financial insight, but also because you pick up their language and this is more useful outside the organization, I think. You know, you understand what are their real priorities, how are they talking about them, what words is the CEO using to describe different challenges or different opportunities. I, and I guess, obviously, inside an organization, 
you're much more plugged into that. You have your internal comms, but I've always encouraged people to do that from the outside as well. Correct. I love that what you were saying with the finance partner, right? So sitting down with a peer mm-hmm. in the finance team and, re- and really drilling into that. In Etsy, what kind of level in the finance team is that? Did you have like a dedicated marketing partner or was it a more generalist? I did. So at, at Etsy and or, uh, organizing at that level, you have what we call like a financial planning analysis department. Mm-hmm. And then each financial planning analysis individual is responsible for a certain number of departments within that organization. And mm-hmm. then they would combine these projections and then it would layer all the way up to how are we doing against our guidance? If we are doing better or worse, why is that? What does that actually mean for the next quarter or in the next year? And are there areas of our forecast that we all need to modify? Yeah, or, or our activities, I guess. Or activities, or activities that we can influence that as well. Correct. Mm-hmm. It's an amazingly tight tolerance, obviously, in a, in a company like Etsy with publicly traded and with Correct. guidance going on and all these kind of things. You've got this very tight tolerance. Correct. You're presumably also thinking over much longer timescales. And that obviously you can't predict that with a 95% accuracy. Correct. How has your thinking evolved on, yeah, those differences between, okay, I'm predicting this month that I'm in now or this quarter that I'm in now versus saying, where could we be in a year's time or what's our three-year plan? Have you evolved your thinking on how to come up with those angles? So for the most part, during my duration at Etsy, I was responsible for the one-year plan. Mm-hmm. We do that during annual planning in Q4, typically around October to yep. December. And then for the three-year plan, you had this opportunity every year at that time to like pitch to the entire organization what you think we should invest in as an organization. Yep. It's one of those things that is a bit hard to do for a three-year plan because at a certain stage of a company, you're not as interested, like the things that you think are going to be meaningful, hypothetically, like a $1 million increase in revenue. When you look at the percentage of growth, it's trivial, right? right? And so then you're like, okay, then it has to be something that we think could make $50 million in three years time. And so the reality is your options actually are much more finite, right? You Mm -hmm. can't be thinking about a channel growth opportunity. There's very almost very little probability that anything could be worth $50 million in increased revenue in three years time with just one channel. So you really think about partnerships, acquisitions, and then new category development. Mm. And so those are the type of scale, the scale of things that you have to consider and think about. Everything else falls into what I call more of like evergreen, foundational. Business as usual. Business as usual and so forth. Yeah. That actually leads into a really interesting thing. So when we were talking the preparation, we were talking about when someone is pitching maybe a six-figure investment. And I think that's a really interesting size to think about because on the one hand, to a large organization, it's nothing. You know, like you say, if you're trying to get uplifts in the eight figures plus, then spending six figures isn't going to be the thing that gets you that. On the other hand, it can be surprisingly hard to spend or to get sign-off on spending six-figure budgets, especially in a channel. And so I'm kind of curious about your experience on that disconnect or, or how have you pitched or heard pitches that have been effective in that kind of scale where it's big enough to need a pitch, but it's not big enough to be a, you know, a strategic pillar of a three-year plan. So it really depends on where it falls into like the category. So for example, let's say I have a budget for the year. By the time January comes around, I'm already 
determine where like 97% of the budget is going to be allocated to. Now, exactly dollar by dollar, not, but really is. For the remaining 3%, it becomes into this, where do I think I'm going to get the most value for this amount of money? And how do I determine that? There's multiple variables involved here. One is, is there any precedent that not only have I seen, but have I ever heard that is going to derive some value from that? And if that's the case, I'm going to dig in and be like, what are the variables involved for this to be successful? And then what do I need to anticipate to set this up? Does it take six months? Does it take me being a bit low key for two months to lay the groundwork and not make a big splash? Because we need to go through 15 iterations. And when you have a big pitch like this, and a lot of people are aware of this and curious about it, in general, the culture becomes a lot more risk averse. Right, You want to be able to see mm-hmm. a win in the first experiment or the second experiment. The interest fatigues over time. And so that element is. On the paid side, it's usually a lot easier. One, it's mm-hmm. because you can control the variables. You can say, you know what? I may have a six-figure budget, but I can set up for $10,000 right now. And I can tell you exactly what I learned in six weeks' time. That predictability is tied to like a willingness because there's a direct correlation between what activity I did and what outcome I received. And for things that do not constitute an input-output type of formula, it becomes a lot harder. Because how do you determine that what you're spending this money on is actually producing results that are truly going to be meaningful? And all resources are finite. And so things that are like content like SEO, typically I pitch it or think about the way that I would with any investment to brand marketing. You can't think of it like a paid performance. It's not a per click budget. It's not a per click budget, but at the same time, it is riskier in that sense where you could spend this $100,000 hypothetically and would get nothing. And you've Mm -hmm. wasted an opportunity to be like, I could have made hypothetically like $250,000 in revenue with this Mm -hmm. amount of budget. And so What's the upside? How do I actually say this is a worthwhile experiment? How do I get buy-in from the rest of the org? But I've often pitched SEO. And also, like, what is the appetite? Like, as a business, based on how we're performing today, how much time do we actually have? Like, basically, okay, we have a gap in the business, and we understand that we need to meet this revenue number by X months. If my runway for all of this is, like, I really don't have a lot of pressure to generate results until month 18. I'm willing to take that risk now. But if that $100,000 needs to be seen as revenue in the next two quarters, my risk tolerance has drastically changed. Mm -hmm. And so I need to account for that and be like, look, this is just not the right time. First of all, I'm setting up the project completely up for failure because expectations and the requirements of what is needed right now, based on what the business needs in this moment, is not aligned. And then second of all, I'm actually hurting the potential for this. If I do pitch it successfully, I'm hurting the potential of the company to invest in this in the future because of this negative experience. And so part of that is understanding what is the right time, why it's the right time, what is the appetite for risk in this very moment, and then leveraging those right opportunities is all part of the equation that sets like my team and my responsibility 
and what I actually am responsible for within a company, which is oftentimes growth for success. Yeah, that all makes sense. I'm going to pivot a little bit and mm-hmm. talk about, about leadership for a minute and vision. And I'm very curious to hear your experience across, obviously, both Etsy but, and other places you work, but also the, the, when you've been an advisor and you've seen this across kind of multiple companies. How have you seen it done well to cascade company level leadership into kind of department or division level leadership and, and obviously specifically into, into the marketing org? So for me, a really strong company has a very clear mission and a clear vision. And we really reiterate that vision consistently within the org. And oftentimes one or two times is not enough, right? You have to constantly, people have to hear it over and over again. And so it's ingrained into like, okay, what is the purpose and why are we all here? My job mm-hmm. as a leader is then to be like, if that's the vision, then this is like the strategy that we are and the path that we should take to accomplish this vision in this duration of time. So me having that clarity and communicating it in a way that my team says, I know how I can be a valuable contributor to this vision through X, Y, and Z is actually really important. Otherwise it just becomes too high level and not something that they feel like they're actually truly having an impact on. So that tangibility is really key here as a leader. The second thing is how do you keep the team focused on the most important work? Right. And so you can have, you can be inspired after hearing a vision and have 10,000 ideas. What ends up happening is if you let people run through those 10,000 ideas, they're going to burn themselves out and actually not feel internally rewarded or externally rewarded for all the effort they've put in. And so part of that is that fine line of being like, this is what explaining to people why it is, how to prioritize it. And then to go through and be very consistent and deliberate with the way you communicate that so that People are always focused on the right things and know that it's rewarded in some way and appreciated within the org. And then at the same time, there's this fine balance. And I've done that multiple different ways is how do you have that ruthless prioritization, but still allow people to take certain risks? And how do you create some type of framework for risk taking, which isn't like people saying, I've pitched 10 ideas and not one has gotten approved. It can be very demoralizing, Mm -hmm. but also you don't want to be like, okay, your job is to solely focus on improving CAC by 2% month over month, which in another way is also very demoralizing. So how do you create and reward experiments and Mm risk-taking within your org in a way that is going to be appreciated and valued in all aspects? And so that's the way I think about the line between leadership and management within my own department and doing mm-hmm. it at all levels. So training my managers to do that with their direct reports is part of the culture I want to create. We value risk. We value leaning in. We value hard work. We value all of those things. Not only do I say it, but actually in every moment of every day, we do our best to live by those values. I love that point about the you know, is your job to improve CAC by X percent you know, month over month? Because one of the things that I've struggled with a little bit on my own learning journey is the deeper I've got into those metrics and those ways of thinking, and the more I've learned about you know best practice or you know the things other people have learned about growing companies. Actually, the more I get excited by the numbers, and that's like my personal mindset and approach. And I have to work quite hard not to just set targets that are 
you know, improve this number by that percent <laughs> because there's a lack of storytelling there. There's a lack of mm -hmm. connection to what people really value. And then I think one of the hard things sometimes in leadership is to tie together those, you know, like ultimately the goal is move this number from there right. to there. Yeah, but like we need the story, we need the purpose, we need the vision that goes with that. So I'm really interested in hearing you say that side of it. There is an element I've been able to make that really tangible. So I can give examples mm -hmm. of that. I'd love that. Yes. So essentially, sometimes it is to improve CAC or to increase revenue by X percent. And that truly is the company goals. And I understand that it may not be, it may be, it will definitely be communicated with my team, but it's not just the exact way of how to communicate it. The one benefit of something like improving CAC by 1% is it's actually very difficult to do at a certain level. A certain scale. Yeah. You've done the best targeting best practices, the best creative practices. Ultimately, what ends up happening is you have to think about through the lens of the customer. And this is where psychology comes into play. And so I oftentimes, this has had really like um, at Glossy, we realized it actually had to do with like the creative elements. Mm. So my team invested a lot of time and with growth, growth marketing and growth product, you oftentimes think very much in terms of like inputs and outputs. So it is a, a very clear formula, but it's often hard for someone who comes from that background to think about things in a different perspective. And so really spending a lot of time with the creative team, I went into one meeting and the creative director is like, why is every meeting with you with an Excel spreadsheet? And I realized, okay, this is not working. This is not their happy place. <laughs> We're not speaking the same language. They don't like mm. the spreadsheets. We did format everything to be less numbers and more of a presentation style and saying, okay, with this ad and this asset that you created on our behalf, these are the results we saw. And this is why it's meaningful. And just like one or two, but ultimately we also created like storyboards for them. So these are the common things that we see work. These are the things that common don't see work. And then we, we actually share that. And part of that is ultimately to have any meaningful impact on the business, you can't really be working by yourself. But most people really struggle to think about, okay, what does finance care about? How do you speak to someone on the finance team? How do you speak to someone on engineer team? How do you speak to someone on product? How do you speak to someone on creative? They each have their own lingo, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes you, in, in meetings that are not effective, you really can't understand each other's perspective. And so once you go into that and put yourself into that and, and speak their language, there's a mutual respect and appreciation. It's very actually very rare in any organization. And so part of the value prop that I've now brought on because I've built my own fractional CMO business, so I'm no longer in-house, is... A lot of CEOs have said it's very rare to find a growth marketer, someone who is really good at driving growth, to get the full buy-in of a creative team, get the full buy-in of a brand team, get the full buy-in of the comms team, but still also get this full buy-in of engineering and finance, right? And mm -hmm. part of that is just being able to speak to each other language. I've been in so many meetings, whether it's by agencies, the creative agencies or any agency or working with product and engineer, they're like, yes, you, you can fully understand what I care about. And you actually can internalize, like you lay things out in the exact way I need. So it's hyper effective, it's hyper efficient. Mm. And I'm already really compelled by the fact that you know how difficult it will take for me to get this done. Yeah. And, and you made the effort to speak my language, I guess. And you made the yeah. effort to speak the language. And so part of that is I also like the leader side is that my team sees that, that I can speak 
in eight to 10 languages, so to speak. And mm-hmm. they're like, oh, this is actually effective. Like, how do I learn the verbatim or the verbiage that is going to actually drive an impact? And so that becomes a growth opportunity within themselves because they see that this is actually required. It's no longer at certain stage of careers like, okay, I have expertise in this one area. I can move up. At some point, that's it's not a direct path anymore. Being really good at what you do is no longer sufficient. It's about being able to have influence at different levels within the organization. And so they realize, okay, this is an area I need to develop. Because I'm like, you're thinking about it from your perspective. Why would someone on engineering or creative care? Yeah, They don't care about CAC. You mm. care about CAC. Finance cares about CAC. Nobody else cares about CAC. So talking about <laughs> CAC all day is very ineffective. Why don't you bring it up and be like, okay, how does this make our customer feel? What does this actually represent for our brand? Why do you think that matters? Yeah, I love that. Everything is just iteration of that, of some form. I love that kind of concrete example with the creative folks of getting away from spreadsheets to presentations and creative boards and those kinds of things. Have you got anything equivalently concrete in the ways that you've worked with, say, product teams or brand teams or any of those other folks who aren't, I guess, engineering or finance? So for product, we actually have a lot more coming out. And a lot of what I do is actually with conversion optimization, checkout flow, um, like PVP design. It's very similar in the sense that a product manager needs to think about, all right, I have X finite resources and I need to work on a project for three months or six weeks and so forth, the time frame. So they can take on three to four projects in a given year. Okay, why would they work on this one project, right? If you think about spending three months on something and generating $1,000 in revenue, that in itself is just not meaningful. So it's not just revenue, but is it also something that's going to capture their attention, right? Is it something they can pitch to their designers and their engineers to be like, this collectively is an exciting opportunity because of X, Y, and Z. So bringing in, helping them figure out how to make this project captivating and coming in and being like, if we increase conversion, like I've done my research, other companies have seen this work improve conversion by 2%. This translates to X amount of revenue. You've already got their attention. Mm-hmm. And then, then it's a matter of being like, okay, what's in scope, what's out of scope? Can you define it? And actually, most people do not spend enough time writing clear briefs. And the reason the clear brief is important is a couple of things. One is it clarifies for yourself that you know exactly what it is that you want. Like building me three to five more images or improving site speed is just not specific enough. So you're just asking them to take on this work to solve this problem when you don't actually have clarity for yourself. And you're gonna need at some point their help to a certain level of detail, but you can take it pretty far and just being able to communicate that shows, oh, you've already thought through that. Then oftentimes I'm like, okay, walk me through your structure. When do you do sprints? When do you do planning? So I'm timing it in the appropriate time. That isn't changing the way that they operate on a weekly, monthly cadence. And then it's just a matter of, Again, me writing a very clear brief and then them being like, I actually know what to do with it. So oftentimes if the brief is not clear and you're asking the other person to spend a lot of energy and their own time to interpret it, it's going to be deprioritized because it's not an idea coming from them. 
it's a lot of work for them to go back to you and do back and forth to help you clarify your idea for them. So part of that is doing at least 80% of the work up front to write a really clear brief so that by the time you write, they're like, wow, this is really compelling. Because if otherwise the onus is on them and the risk is on them to dedicate all of their quarters worth of work to put to, on this project that they're going to spend 10 hours to define on your behalf. And developing that over and over, it just it belabors something that could be much simpler into something that is quite tedious and it's, it's unnecessarily so. I'm going to keep moving through some different topics. So the next one I wanted to, to ask you about, I think this is something that you're quite opinionated about and you have quite a lot of thoughts on. So what do the best people that you've had on your teams or the best agencies that you've worked with do that not everyone does? So I can be more specific agencies because over the last I guess, six years, I've worked with over 20 plus agencies. The first thing is actually for, let's just say a performance agency, they say, this is what I commit to doing. This is the forecast I'm anticipating it. And then if they meet the forecast or even exceed it, they feel very satisfied with that. They're like, I did exactly what I said and I over-delivered. However, there's oftentimes a misalignment. So for example, if you find out and it's a public company that they had a really difficult earnings call and they missed guidance, most agencies are not able to put the two together to be like, actually, we're not in a good place. So you may have been successful in your one department, but that does not define success for an entire business. And so that requires you in real time to be like, wait, what could I be doing differently or better? And then what can I pitch as an idea to improve that knowing X, Y, and Z. And so oftentimes it's really hard for them to think outside of their own success metrics, right? And say, okay, even if I, I did my part, but that doesn't mean that I can't actually help Stephanie think about the larger ecosystem marketing. It's very, very rare to find someone who is willing to step in into that arena and have those conversations with me. I would say it's probably happened once in six years and it does capture my attention Mm -hmm. oftentimes it is coming from like the ceo of the agency frankly and less about their team because that's it's a big thing to ask for somebody to be like wait i need to think outside the seo and think about wait how does that actually mean what does actually mean for my engagement with you maybe it's not enough of what we're doing and oftentimes agencies rely on me to bring this up So the way that they typically do is let's do a monthly check-in. And then they're like, how do you think about our performance? Do you have feedback for us? Mm -hmm. And that's actually just asking a lot for me to be like, I need to give you all the information, the granularity without you having done any of the upfront work when actually you should be knowing quite frankly, exactly how we're doing Mm. instead of relying on me to give you all the information when a lot of it's already at your disposal. So for example, right now, Probably over the past eight months, the entire venture ecosystem has dramatically changed. So we're pivoting away from a very clearly growth at all costs. We Mm -hmm. are not worried about our next fundraise to a very, very clear pivot, very drastic pivot to profitability, get to profitability as quick as possible. And cash runway has become... Yeah, sustainability, default live, right? Much more meaningful than growth rate. And the behavior of agencies have not gone in alignment with that. Interesting. Right. So they're thinking, you know what? Our CAC is there. So therefore, the LTV is there. 
Right. And so I'm actually pushing with my clients, meaning that I'm the CMO for the the clients I have. And so I'm working with agencies on their behalf to be like, this is just frankly not good enough. Right. We actually need to decrease X by 40%. So yes, last year we could be at this, but right now, because cash is so precious, if you can't achieve this, then we need to think about alternatives. So the way they think about risk, the way they think about experiment design, the way they think about how much time it takes to run an experiment has not changed at all. So for example, in the past, we might be okay with hitting statistical significance on the experiment and waiting four to six weeks. But right now, I'm like, that time is really precious. I'm going to have to make a decision where, yes, I'm going to bypass high confidence that I'm not misreading this data for me making a decision in two weeks. And yes, it's not Mm -hmm. perfect. It's definitely breaking a lot of convention, but it's also going to preserve cash for four weeks. And so we're not running in the same cadence and pace in the line of thinking because we, um, a lot of agencies have really struggled to think in a a slightly different mindset based on what the ecosystem requires. Yeah, definitely. We're very aligned on that. One of the things we talk about is we call it, we're doing business, not science is our angle for whether to deploy something without statistical significance. And sometimes that's that you've run it for the full length and you've not reached statistical significance and you've still got to make a decision of what to do. Correct. And other times it's, it's the scenario you're describing where it's like, I just want to go faster. I want to make the decision with 70% of the information and trust that we can make you know, the right decision more often than not and go faster. And that is a very different context, very different mindset to... Yeah, I'm running a clinical trial and I need to be really sure that this drug is going to you know, not have any negative side effects or something like that, which is where the scientific statistical confidence comes from. And I think sometimes there's too much of a reliance on that. But I'm really interested in the point you said in there about how it's often the CEO of the agency or, or I mean, mm-hmm. it sounds like it's, it's not happened very often, but when it has happened, it's been the CEO or other times you have to bring it up. Correct. And obviously we've been agency side together. There is that challenge agency side of bringing up these tough conversations of feeling like you're putting your your revenue at risk, you're putting your account at risk. Mm -hmm. I think that's some of the mindset, even though actually it builds trust probably. And if that doubt is there on the client side, then you're probably not in a good place anyway. But what would your advice be, I guess, to any agencies who are listening, who are trying to figure out how to operationalize some of this stuff? Is it just that the CEO does have to get involved or do you think it's teachable? Do you think it's trainable into the teams? I have not had success training or teaching the people within an agency on this. And oftentimes I think it's because a lot of the people I work with, they've only worked in an agency environment. And I think it's mm-hmm. more rare to find someone who's been in-house, but if they have been in-house, they've also been doing the exact same role. So it's, it's a level of visibility and also responsibility that is really hard to integrate into the way they think. It's a different way of thinking altogether, a different way of working, right? It's just yep. like, it's essentially asking an SEO to be like, I don't care about number of backlinks and I don't care about rankings and I don't care about trends and I do not care about your domain authority. So you're feeling like, okay, what do you want me to report on? How do you want me to show performance without any of these traditional levers and metrics that I typically mm-hmm. report on? It can be disconcerting. You're just like flustered and don't know where to even begin because all of the conventions are just thrown out the window. So it has been that, frankly, because a CEO is more ingrained with what it actually takes 
to look at things from a different perspective and in the longevity of a company be like, are we even going to be okay in six to 12 months time? And the reality is there aren't a lot of people who can be a thought partner for you, for me specifically, right? So let's say I know that I need to increase revenue by 40% in the next 12 months. There aren't a lot of people who can actually come to me and be like, let's actually have a really thoughtful discussion about it. And here are the things I've seen work successfully within my clients. And this is the approach I would take. That actually has never happened before, but it actually catched my attention because as someone who has actually walked exactly in my position and thought about it outside the scope of quote unquote, their responsibility and our contractual agreement. But it's something that you can't find. So the fact that I've never had that in six years means that once I do, I'm really going to cherish and value that. A lot of times agencies at this point are a bit of a commodity. There are a lot of fantastic agencies that can do every channel really well. And so ultimately, it's another competition to be like, it's it's come down to media fee versus execution. But the execution in general is like phenomenal. So it's, it's now going to be based on the, the fee structure. So in order to elevate yourself outside of that, it would have to be in this way because quite frankly, it's not that hard to find another amazing agency who's willing to give me a 1% discount on the media fee. And that's meaningful. And so for me, that would be really valuable. Yeah. It probably ties into another thing that um, I know you have opinions on, which is when have you chosen to hire an agency versus build out the capability yourself? So an agency is really useful for me for a couple of different situations. One is that I'm not sure if this is going to be a channel that is going to work for this business. Mm -hmm. If I commit to employee, like I'm responsible for that employee's future. If I want an agency to say, look, let's just test X channel for six months. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And now we know. No hard feelings. No yeah. hard feelings and so forth. So it's a matter of going through a number of iterations at a quick speed and then be okay if it's not working in three months and then we all just leave on good terms. Mm-hmm. The second time when I hire an agency is like, is my business conducive to hiring the type of talent needed to run this channel, right? And so my background is really strong in consumer marketing. So if I, yeah. if I have an element of this that I need that is not someone what the background consumer marketing is going to be appealed by, it makes sense to hire an agency to have that level of talent and so forth. So you have to understand where and be really honest with yourself about like, is this the type of company, for example, all-star engineer is going to want to work at? I was just going to say engineering is the classic one, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Is, is it complex enough? Or even finance is another one. Mm-hmm. Do I have enough other relations? Is it something exciting? Is this something I can learn from? Is it something that I can push my capability interest into a new area. Uh, and, and the same actually applies for marketing. So brand marketing, performance marketing. For example, for a performance marketer and you only have one SKU, it's really not that exciting. And it is a, a SKU that costs $500. There is, yes, you have room for CAC, but actually there is less creative opportunity there compared to all the other companies that this person can pursue. So it's going to come down to something like this. And then when I decide to bring it in-house, it's a combination of, one, I can find the type of talent that is going to want to work at this company and stay at this company and build with this company. And two, it's an area that I can see us investing in in the next 18 to 24 months. And then three, 
this, the math work out, like how much I'm paying for agency versus how much it would take all inclusive to hire an employee. Does that actually calculation map out? And if it meets all three, then the decision is pretty clear, but that's typically yep. when I decide when to hire an agency and when to actually hire a team. Yeah. Makes sense. We're down to kind of the final few minutes. So we're going to do some more off the wall kind of directions, I guess, for the, mm-hmm. for the final bit. So first one is, this is a long time ago now, because this goes back even before we started working together. But prior to coming to Distilled, you were a public school teacher, right? I was a public school teacher. And I'm curious about what do you still look back on from that time? What did you learn in the public school system as a teacher, as an educator, that you feel like you still lean on in your career today? There are a couple of components. First of all, it's the most difficult job I've ever had by far. Mm-hmm. Doesn't surprise me. What's actually really hard about public school teaching that I take away is like how much you have to see and how it's a combination of like, okay, you have these aspirations to be truly inspirational and to help develop children and learn skill sets, both like tangible, but also not as tangible, right? And work through certain life milestones. Life skills. And And life skills and so forth. And at the same time, you realize how not impactful you are in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. And so you realize, wow, it's really difficult to rise above a certain situation. And just for context, I worked in the South Bronx. And so you're seeing like layers of layers of challenges that children go through in their home life, in their day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. And you realize, okay, what is the best situation I can create today? And so part of that is like realizing, okay, all of this in some ways is like, can I build a resiliency myself and rise above certain challenges within my circumstances? And that mentality has carried me through because I realize if you don't have that, like if you don't believe in yourself and you don't push yourself above your circumstances, and this is something I'm still developing. It took years and years and years to build it's going to end up being exactly the same situation. And that's really hard pill to swallow. It's something hard to watch as well, but it's painfully enlightening in some ways as well. And so that part I I take with me. And then the other part, you start seeing a lot of biases. So when I transition immediately from a public school system that's in a high need environment to like the work environment, you really see the gap of, biases that are prevalent in all aspects of it. So even the way that people talk, the way the hiring process, how we deem a qualified candidate, all of that, I started getting a real sense of like how truly difficult it is to even get an entry level job at a marketing agency mm-hmm. and how competitive it is. And for me, it was an incredibly humbling experience in many ways. And so that part has still carried with me to this day is to realize like how truly fortunate I am and how many people have opened doors for me and how like not everyone gets that opportunity. And then also how like in some ways I've been very fortunate, you know, with the education, with the family environment I have to have set such a solid foundation for me to actually grow upon. And so all of those things help me realize like, the big picture of things and also help me decide how I want to live my life in some ways. Yeah. And so that part has been particularly compelling. So it's less about the tangible skills, but it's more about the entire experience 
Honestly, that's probably what I'd expect to still be there decade mm-hmm. plus later in terms of the ways that it made you feel and the things that stick with you as priorities in your life, I think. It's really interesting actually talking about the, I've personally been on a big journey since that era of you know, when you joined Distilled and mm-hmm. through to today in all of those areas around privilege and diversity and, and all those things you just talked about. And we were talking about it at Distilled towards the end of your time mm-hmm. there, but we were also at that point in a company where we'd built it to that point having not thought about it at the beginning, I think mm-hmm. is probably fair to say, or not, not thought about it deeply at the beginning. And one of the things that's been interesting with Searchpilot, which isn't a brand new company because it obviously spun out of Distilled, mm. and so it still has, it has some of the legacy of Distilled, but in some ways it was a fresh start. I feel like I'm a one and a half time founder is the way I describe it. Mm. I'm not the second time founder, but I'm like a one and a half time. And it's been interesting to try and build some of those lessons in. And we can't, you know, obviously can't undo everything about society, but to try and bake some of that stuff in. So that's probably something we get deeper into another day because we're kind of coming up towards the end of our time together. So my final question, mm-hmm. totally, let's lighten the mood a little bit. We've got into some very intense stuff there, is a lot of people who listen to podcasts listen to lots of podcasts. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious to hear a bit about, aside from appearing on this one, what do you like listening to? Yeah, I like listening to, so my partner and I, we win our car, we listen to like Lex Friedman's podcast. And then we also listen to the All In podcast. The on podcast has really helped me understand like the economic macroeconomic trends and what it actually means. So for example, they anticipated probably a year in advance that we're going to have inflation in the US. And it wasn't going to be transitory. And right? it wasn't going to be yeah. transitory. And they were like, this is what I would do right now if I were a CEO. Mm. And then they talked about cash runway probably eight months ago. And so all of that helped me understand, okay, how does this all pair about in a way that I can translate and understand and make tangible in my own day-to-day and what it actually means for my own business as well and so forth. And then Lex Freeman, I really like the way that he interviews um, is open to perspective and interviews a wide variety of people, a lot of whom I've never heard of about particularly sensitive topics. And it really has taught me a little bit about like, how do I react to certain conversations? What does that mean? Why does it make me feel this way? What does it mean to be objective about certain things? And so forth. So I like the depth that he goes into with his interviews. Yeah, I'm uh, less familiar with him, more familiar with the All In group. I'm always fascinated by that dynamic they have going on where you know, there's a lot of arguing, there's a lot of kind of banter that goes with it. I- I'm never quite sure whether to come away uplifted or terrified by what they see coming down the track. But Definitely useful stuff that people can check that out. I'm going to be respectful of your time. You've been very generous to take the time having this conversation today. It's been really fun catching up again. So thank you very much. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Of course. And if there's anything you need, well, just let me know. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. If you have any questions about anything we discuss on the podcast, drop me a line by email at podcast at searchpilot.com or get in touch on Twitter, where I'm at Will Critchlow. This podcast is the business class lounge from Searchpilot. Searchpilot helps large websites prove the value of SEO by making SEO tests easier, faster, and more accurate. You can find out more about Searchpilot at searchpilot.com. Today's podcast was produced by Mark Cotton and hosted by me, Will Critchlow. If you enjoyed the conversation, please recommend it to a friend.